Deadly wildfires are tearing across two islands in Hawaii, forcing thousands of people from their homes. It's Thursday, August 10th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, President Biden signs an executive order restricting U.S. investments in Chinese technology. Also, San Francisco officials say they're worried about a push for more self-driving cars. If we are blocked by uh, an autonomous vehicle, a fire will double in size in a minute. That could lead to um, more harm to the people in that building. And this hour, how the Boston Housing Authority's new administrator, Kenzie Bach, hopes to address the city's affordable housing crisis. Even when we're providing the best customer service possible, we're still telling you in the case of public housing that you're on a 37,000 person wait list, um, which is tough and it's why I'm so committed to adding units. Mid 80s today with a chance of afternoon rain. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The National Guard has been deployed across the island of Maui as fast-moving wildfires continue to burn. Officials in Hawaii say at least 36 people have died and hundreds of residents and tourists have been evacuated. The fires have reached the historic town of Lahaina. Resident Malika Dudley says she and her family were forced to leave their home in the middle of the night. We got a call from our neighbor who said, get out of your house. And we looked out the window and there was a red glow outside of our window. The fire was right above our property. Woke up all the children, piled them into my car. Officials say the exact cause of the blazes is unknown, but a number of factors, including high winds and dry vegetation, likely contributed. President Biden has approved federal assistance to help with search and rescue efforts on the island. The U.S. Coast Guard and Navy are assisting local emergency teams. The FBI has shot and killed a man who had been accused of making threats against President Biden. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports the man also threatened a New York City prosecutor who brought criminal charges against former President Donald Trump earlier this year. The FBI was investigating Craig DeLue Robertson. According to the charging documents, Robertson had, quote, intent to kill, at a minimum, New York DA Alvin Bragg and President Biden. Robertson allegedly said he needed to prepare his camouflage and sniper rifle in anticipation of Biden's trip to Utah this week. And Robertson allegedly threatened to assassinate Bragg in a parking garage. The charging documents said he also mentioned other politicians, including New York Attorney General Letitia James, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland, and California Governor Gavin Newsom. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. The Labor Department will release the latest numbers on the cost of living later this morning. NPR Scott Horsley reports rising gasoline prices are putting upward pressure on inflation. Gas prices have not bounced back to the record high set last summer, but they have jumped in recent weeks as a result of rising crude oil prices and extreme heat along the Gulf Coast, which has put the squeeze on refining capacity. Forecasters think the annual inflation rate for July will be about 3.3 percent, up from 3 percent the month before. That would be the first uptick in inflation after 12 straight months of decline. Stripping out volatile food and energy prices, so-called core inflation likely eased a bit last month, but it's still well above the Federal Reserve's target of 2 percent. The Fed will get one more report on August prices before it has to decide whether to keep raising interest rates at its next meeting in late September. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. On Wall Street, Dow futures are trading higher at this hour. This is NPR News. 
Many parts of the southern U.S. remain under excessive heat warnings and advisories. Afternoon highs are expected to reach the upper 90s to low triple digits in many areas stretching from Texas to Florida. The lead songwriter of one of the best-known bands of the 1960s and 70s has died. NPR's Netta Ulibi reports Robbie Robertson was 80 years old. The group The Band got its name from backing up Bob Dylan in the late 1960s. Robbie Robertson co-founded the band and wrote some of its biggest hits. Robertson was born in Canada. He was part Mohawk and grew up partly out of reservation. As a teenager, he left home to play music professionally. The Delta Blues musicians he played with influenced him profoundly. After the band split up in 1976, Robertson had a solo career. He released half a dozen albums and worked with filmmakers, including Martin Scorsese. Robbie Robertson drew on his native ancestry for their final project, the upcoming movie Killers of the Flower Moon. Nato Ulibi, NPR News. A powerful tropical storm has forced the evacuation of more than 10,000 people in parts of South Korea. Emergency crews are responding to reports of flooding and landslides in certain areas. Many roads and highway underpasses have been forced to close. Forecasters say the eye of the storm is expected to pass over the capital city of Seoul tonight before making its way into North Korea. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Boston City Councilors are considering tax breaks for businesses working in the area known as Mass and Cass. The proposal would provide property tax abatement for businesses impacted by drug use and violence in the neighborhood. Councilor Aaron Murphy tells the Boston Herald local businesses have spent millions on security and repairs in recent years. U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren is calling on the Biden administration for more federal money to support farms impacted by this summer's floods. Warren and other New England senators say current relief funds won't be enough to recoup farmers' losses. Last month, flooding impacted more than 100 Massachusetts farms, resulting in the loss of more than $15 million in crops. A new report shows that predatory fish in the northwest Atlantic Ocean may lose 40 percent of their habitat by the end of the century. In some areas, that number is as high as 70 percent. The study from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution in Falmouth looked at tuna, billfish, and sharks, which migrate off the coast of the state. A decline in those populations could impact New England fisheries. Canton's Little League team is one win away from heading to the Little League World Series in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. WBUR's Fausto Menard has more. The state champs from Massachusetts will take on the state champs from Maine tonight at 7. Canton got to the New England Regional Final by beating New Hampshire yesterday. The boys from just south of Boston are also looking for revenge. Maine is the only team Canton has lost to this season, and it happened earlier this week. The winner of tonight's game will represent the New England region in Pennsylvania. That tournament starts next week. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. It's 7.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information 
at wallacefoundation.org. The Red Sox pulled off a one-run win against the Kansas City Royals last night. They now lead the home series by one game. The teams will play one more time at Fenway tonight at 7. And the Patriots kick off their first preseason game. The team will host the Houston Texans at Gillette. Kickoff is also at 7. Clouds will increase throughout the morning, bringing a chance of rain in the late afternoon. A flood watch goes into effect beginning at 2 p.m. We'll have a high around 84 degrees. Tonight, showers and thunderstorms will likely bring heavy rain and gusty winds. Temperatures will fall to lows in the mid-60s. Clearing overnight, then tomorrow a sunny Friday with a high near 82. Right now it's 70 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Sarah McCammon. Thousands have spent the night in evacuation shelters on the Hawaiian island of Maui after fast-moving wildfires devastated parts of the island, killing at least 36 people. The fire has burned more than 1,100 acres and destroyed at least 271 structures. Strong winds from Hurricane Dora that stoked the flames also downed trees and power lines, leaving more than 14,000 residents without power. Napua Greg lives on Maui with her 80-year-old mother. The two were evacuated from their homes, but have since been able to return. It's so hard to stand by and watch your your friends and family suffer, and you want to do something. Right now, we don't really know what to do. I'm joined now by the Lieutenant Governor of Hawaii, Sylvia Luke. Thank you so much for being here. No, thanks for having me. First of all, just help us understand, if you could, the scale of devastation that's been caused by these wildfires. Uh, You know, this is usually uh, Hawaii's hurricane season. We see a significant amount of rain um, and flooding associated with rain. We have never experienced this type of wildfires as a result of a hurricane. What has made it even worse is when the wildfires were triggered because of the temperature condition, the gusts produced by the Category 4 Hurricane Dora was in the upwards of 75 to 85 miles per hour, Hmm. which resulted in uh, many of these brush fires. This is very devastating. I did an aerial flight with the Coast Guard and saw firsthand how the fire um, devastated the town of Lahaina. Uh, Homes were destroyed. Businesses were destroyed. It just looked like, you know, the whole town went and dissolved into ashes. And we're so heartbroken to see this happen um, before our eyes. We've heard about the rising death toll. What about injuries? What else are you seeing? Individuals had burn injuries. Um, Some of those individuals are being medevaced to Oahu for... um, Burn treatment, individuals with smoke inhalation are being treated on site. From what I understand, because there is a shelter-in-place order, um, the mayor is um, discouraging people from unnecessarily um, leaving their house. A lot of people with injuries are not going to the hospital, so we're encouraging um, people to still go to the hospital um, and uh, you know take care of themselves. You know, unlike other parts of the U.S., you kind of alluded to the fact that Hawaii isn't used to seeing these kinds of wildfires. I mean, do you have what you need to care for evacuees and what kind of help does the state need? The Big Island and uh, Maui County have opened shelters. The unfortunate thing is because of the large number of uh, individuals being evacuated, a lot of times the shelters became um, 
over um, use. And because the wildfires were traveling, many of the shelters had to close down and reopen at different places. We are getting significant amount of federal support. Um, National Guard has been triggered. FEMA is providing assistance. How are people coping? I mean, have you had a chance to talk to people in these shelters or talk to evacuees? How are, how are people doing? A lot of individuals will have mental health issues. They're suffering. Um, they have never been in a situation where uh, they just overnight lost the businesses that they invested in. Um, it's going to take years, sometimes maybe decades for us to replace some of the infrastructure, including schools and roads. You mentioned recovery will take some time. I mean, many areas have lost power and, and phone service. How is that affecting response and rescue efforts? In certain areas, especially in Lahaina, uh, West Maui, um, they lost 911 service. Individuals with um, cell phones could not make calls. Internet was down. So communicating with family members and loved ones who uh, were not with them, that has been a challenge. Uh, it, It will take a while for cell service and internet service to get back online. You know, we've been talking about how unusual this is. Hawaiians are used to maybe big storms, hurricanes, but not these kinds of fires. With climate change, as you know, comes more extreme weather. I mean, how worried are you that the islands will start to see more and more of these types of severe events that you're not used to? Yeah, you know, um, we have experienced um, drought in certain areas. And so this is something that, you know, we Uh, need to assess and how we can better serve our residents. But the focus still remains right now is to contain the fires and provide services for the health and safety of both the residents and um, visitors on Maui. We certainly wish you luck with that. Sylvia Luke is Hawaii's Lieutenant Governor. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you very much. The United States is banning some American investments in high-end technology sectors in China. NPR Beijing correspondent John Ruich told us this could affect Chinese development of semiconductors, quantum computing, and some artificial intelligence systems. These restrictions target investments in China by U.S. private equity companies, venture capital firms, as well as greenfield investments, uh, investments into joint ventures. The Biden administration says it's a national security move. They say they're bolstering American security by trying to prevent China from exploiting U.S. money and U.S. know-how going into China to develop technology indigenously in China that will give the Chinese military or Chinese intelligence organizations an edge. Now, China claims this order is intended to, quote, politicize and weaponize trade, although U.S. officials insist its scope is not that broad. They've made a point of noting that it is not sweeping, it's targeted, it's not being done with economic benefit in mind, it's national security. That's our colleague John Ruich. Now, the economies of the United States and China are not at all on the same page. The U.S. recently faced the problems of a growing economy like inflation or worker shortages, and the economy is generally strong here. China has begun to suffer deflation meaning that many prices are falling. And while high inflation is bad, deflation also can be a sign of economic trouble. Zoe Liu is a China expert at the Council on Foreign Relations, and she joins us from New York. Welcome to the program. 
Thank you, Stephen, for having me. I want to sort this out for layman. One basic cause of deflation, falling prices, would be that demand for products is down. So people have to drop their prices. What is dropping demand for Chinese products? So the weak demand comes from both domestically and internationally. On the one hand, uh, as we observed here in the United States and in uh, Europe, broadly speaking, there is the there 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 has been a rising trend of inflation. Hence, the Federal Reserve and other central banks have been trying to calm inflation by rising interest rate, and that have ripple effect on demand. And then inside China, that is really consumer confidence problem. Oh well, let's talk about each of those separately. I think you're telling me that interest rates are up in the United States, and so the United States is buying less Chinese stuff. Is that where you're going with that? Uh, yes, and actually, we we you also see this in the in in the data as well. Last month. Um, U.S. import from China actually de- de- declined by more than 20 percent, and on top of that, there is also rising geopolitical tension between the two countries. Oh, I wonder how much of a factor that is. A lot of U.S. companies, with the encouragement of the U.S. government, have been looking for alternative sources for their products, going to Vietnam, going to Taiwan, any number of other places to try to replace Chinese uh, imports. Is that having a measurable impact on the Chinese economy? Um, I would say yes, but uh, in order for the long, in order for the U.S. companies to actually uh, fully diversify away from uh, their supplies from from China, it actually would have to take much longer time than what we would have imagined. Uh-huh. So I would say at this moment, the the uh, the effect would be actually not as significant as we would anticipate it. Of course, because the two economies are so intertwined. Um, exactly. You also mentioned uh, domestic demand. Are Chinese consumers buying less? Uh, yes, Chinese consumers are buying less, in particular durable goods such as, uh, you know, uh, cars and all that. And part of the reason is because, on the one hand, their income growth for uh, the past five years have been declined has has declined. And then, on the other hand, obviously there is this phenomenon of price decline because of uh, such as you know Tesla and uh, the Chinese domestic car makers BYD, the price war. Causing falling car prices, hmm. and that is going to cause consumers to imagine. Well, you know, if everybody is trying to cut their prices, maybe car prices next month is going to be lower. Hence, they would cut down their uh, or delay their current expenditure. I just want to note for people: you said Tesla, they make electric cars. BYD, that is an electric car maker in China. You're saying they're having a price war. That itself is fascinating. There's a price war driving down the price of electric cars at this point. But I want to ask a big picture question here. People have assumed that in the next few years, China will become the world's largest economy. Now we hear news of economic trouble in China. We hear news of deflation in China. The population is beginning to decline in China. Is it beginning to seem possible that their economy instead will stall out? That I would argue that it's really going to be dependent upon how the politics in China plays out, and uh, if we learned anything from the rise of China, we uh, the the key message is that Chinese government needs to stick with the policy of reform and open up and don't change that. That is a message sent out by Deng Xiaoping. Uh, however, what we what we observed is that Xi Jinping actually changed that. So it's going to be dependent on the politics. 
Xi Jinping, the current president, uh, with different policies than Deng Xiaoping, a uh, leader from years ago. Zoe Liu of the Council on Foreign Relations, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you, Stephen, for having me. She is the author of Sovereign Funds, How the Communist Party of China Finances Its Global Ambitions. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Thursday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, amid a push to allow more self-driving cars on San Francisco streets, officials there say autonomous vehicles may be a dangerous obstacle for emergency responders. It's 720. Rural colleges in America are struggling. Enrollment and funding shortages are forcing many rural colleges to close or slash programs to stay afloat. If you live in populated places, you get the good options. And if you don't, you just get things that prepare you to go to work. The impact of losing rural higher ed on local students and the nation. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Highs in the mid-80s today with clouds moving in this morning. And those may give way to rain and thunderstorms late this afternoon when a flood watch goes into effect. Tonight, rain and storms are likely and it falls to the mid-60s. Tomorrow, clearing skies mean a sunny day with highs in the low 80s. Right now, it's 70 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from USPS with Ground Advantage, the new two- to five-day package shipping service. Ground Advantage details are at usps.com advantage. The United States Postal Service, delivering for America. From EBSCO, offering clinical decision support resources and tools, including disease and condition content from Dynamed and drug information from Meritive. Learn more at dynamedx.com. And from Workday an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Sarah McCammon. Even with the U.S. team out of the running, record-breaking millions are watching some great soccer at the Women's World Cup right now. Meanwhile, far from that spectacle, just outside downtown Kiev, a professional women's team is training during wartime. NPR's Jenna McLaughlin and producer Katerina Malofieva went to check it out. Young women are warming up on a beautiful green pitch, passing the ball and hyping each other up. It's perfect soccer weather. Breezy, a few stray clouds, cooler temperatures after an overnight summer storm on a Saturday morning in late July. But this is Kyiv, and the country is at war. I'm here to watch a friendly match between two professional women's teams. Our hosts, Shakhtar FC, represent Donetsk, one of the cities close to the eastern border with Russia. But the club hasn't played there in years. Yes, from 2014. If we talk about football, it affected traveling abroad. If we talk about life, it affected my parents financially. Now, the whole family had to move to Kyiv region. They've been here for more than a year since the moment of the invasion. For players like Ilivizieta Molyaduk, the war started a long time ago, back in 2014. But she says that playing for Shakhtar, it's always been a dream. Because I'm myself from Donetsk region, at that time it was a dream to play for them. 
That's why I joined them. Her team lives and trains in Kyiv now. It's safer here, relative to the front lines in the east. But the war has left its marks on all these women. If there's a missile alert, the game will stop abruptly. For now, all is quiet, except for coaches yelling on the sidelines. Shakhtar FC are in orange and black. They're playing a team from Kharkiv in blue. Within the first 30 minutes, a tall, thin woman on Shakhtar receives the ball at her feet. She leans back and takes a difficult shot from outside the 18-yard box. The ball sails across her body through traffic into the top right corner of the net. Shakhtar is up a goal. Her teammates gather her up in a celebratory group hug. But what you wouldn't know is that the goal scorer lost her father just days ago. He died fighting on the front lines in the fiercely contested city of Bakhmut. We stay with her, help her financially, also some girls who are close to her, stay with her overnight. It's much better to play than to be alone by yourself. Holovac Victoria is 26 years old, the captain of Shakhtar FC. Being on a team and playing the sport they love, these women say it helps them cope with the trauma of war, while also proudly representing their country. Sport in general helps to overcome stress. When I asked her, did she play with you together? She said, yes, yeah, she scored the first goal today. It was a great goal. It was a great goal. Like so many young fans around the world, they're rooting for their heroes at the World Cup. Like Danish star Peniel Harder, Alexei Puteas, the two-time Ballon d'Or winner from Spain, and Jessica Silva from Portugal, who played against the United States in their third match of the tournament. Silva is Oleksandra Krevska's hero. She's from the west of the country. I would like soccer in Ukraine to develop on a professional level as fast as in Europe. I would also like to play in a professional championship among the professional teams. When I watch the FIFA championship, I see there is room to improve. Professional women's soccer is still developing in Ukraine. Only two years ago, clubs were first required to have a female squad. And there's still a lingering cultural attitude here that soccer is a boys' sport, people tell me on the sidelines. When I ask the players about their dreams for the future, they say they hope their Premier League will grow, to be like the European leagues whose players are at the World Cup. Like a lot of things here in Ukraine, dreams of progress might be delayed. But these women aren't standing still. At the end of the game, the players shake hands and return to the side of the field, huddling together. This is the last practice match before their season starts. The war drags on, Ukraine is making slow progress in its counteroffensive, reclaiming territory inch by inch. Meanwhile, these women will look for victory on the field and for strength in each other. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News, Kyiv. People who go to weddings or birthday parties or just about anything are bound to hear this booming voice calling them to the dance floor. This is something new, the Casper Slide Part 2, featuring the Platinum Band. And this time, we're gonna get funky. And the man behind that booming voice, Willie Perry Jr., a.k.a. DJ Casper, died earlier this week from cancer. He was 58. Perry became a household name after the release of the Cha-Cha Slide. He was a Chicago native who created the song for his nephew's aerobics class in the late 90s. To the left, take it back now, y'all. One hop this time. Right foot, left stump. Left foot, left stump. 
The song left the gym and made its way to the club, and yeah, eventually to so many weddings. Willie Perry Jr. spoke with WBEZ about the early days of the song's popularity. You know, people would say, hey, let's do that dance you have. And I was like, what dance? And they was like, the cha-cha slide. Universal Records picked up the track. He then released a new version which caught fire in the U.S. and the U.K. in 2004. Allison Hussey is a staff writer with Pitchfork. To me, the cha-cha slide is like very married to like getting my first MP3 player, which I don't remember if cha-cha slide ever made it onto that particular device, but it feels so just like locked with that time for me. Hussey also likes how accessible it is. In contrast to something like the electric slide, I think it takes a little more finesse to actually be good at it. Whereas the cha-cha slide, it seems like the bar for entry is a lot lower. Everybody clap your hands. It's not like a pure pop manufactured hit where it has 20 writers in a studio in Los Angeles. I think that like what they were able to do was just like tap into something really easy and natural and fun. So the next time you're out on that dance floor, think of DJ Casper and cha-cha like no one is watching. (laughs) Well done, good move. Have you done it, Steve? No, I'm just gonna watch you. Okay. How low can you go? Can you go down low? All the way to the floor, how low can you go? Can you bring it to the top? Like it never, never stop? Can you bring it to the top? One hop, right foot now, left foot now, y'all. Cha-cha, real smooth. Turn it out. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. I'll speak with the Boston Housing Authority's new administrator, Kenzie Buck, about her plans for the city's largest housing provider. It's 7.29. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Authorities in Hawaii say at least 36 people have been killed by wind-driven wildfires on the island of Maui. Gusty winds from Hurricane Dora far south of the islands have been fanning the flames. They've burned more than 270 homes, businesses, and other structures. Charred vehicles line some streets. Thousands of people have evacuated Maui or moved into shelters. Claire Kent says the conditions were terrifying as she fled Lahaina as flames reached gas stations. Explosions and just black smoke everywhere. I mean, your skin was thick with dust. And the wind on top of all of that was so crazy. You were dodging branches and just things flying through the air. And then there's a whole wall of black smoke behind us. Poland says it will move thousands of additional troops to its border with Belarus. NPR's Rob Schmitz says the move is in response to stepped-up military exercises. Poland has been on alert since an estimated hundreds of mercenaries from the Russian militia Wagner arrived in Belarus last month at the invitation of President Alexander Lukashenko. 
Belarus has staged military exercises close to its border with Poland in recent weeks. Poland is also seeking additional troops to manage an influx of mainly Middle Eastern and African migrants who have attempted to cross the border from Belarus in recent months. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. It's more than a month late, but Massachusetts has a new state budget. Governor Moore Healy signed the $56 million spending plan into law yesterday. WBUR Steve Brown tells us the attention now shifts to a long-awaited tax relief plan. The lead legislative negotiators who reached an agreement on the budget are the same lawmakers tasked with coming up with a compromise tax relief bill. With the budget now complete, there's hope a consensus can be reached. But so far, no details of what the final version will contain have been released. Governor Healy is hopeful some tax relief is on the horizon. We all recognize that tax relief is something we want to accomplish for purposes of making life more affordable for residents, uh, more competitive for our state. There are a lot of good ideas already out there and on the table. A compromise isn't expected until the legislature returns from its summer break sometime after Labor Day. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. State gaming regulators are increasing scrutiny on fantasy sports. Officials say they're working to determine the line between fantasy sports betting and more typical sports betting. The Massachusetts Gaming Commission is tasked with collecting taxes on daily fantasy sports wagering. At least two daily fantasy sports betting platforms operate in the state. A heads up for anyone going to one of the Bruce Springsteen concerts at Gillette Stadium this month. Tickets for the MBTA's special event train go on sale later this morning. The round-trip tickets must be bought in advance to board the train. They're available on the T's M Ticket app on a first-come, first-served basis. You can get them starting at 11 a.m. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo. The Massachusetts sales tax-free weekend is this weekend. Hunter Douglas Automated PowerView Shades at Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. The Patriots host the Houston Texans tonight at 7. It's the first of three preseason games before the regular season officially kicks off for the Pats on September 10th. The Red Sox are playing their final game in their series with the Kansas City Royals. The Sox pulled off a 4-3 win last night in Game 3. They now lead the series two games to one. Overcast with highs in the mid-80s today, a flood watch goes into effect this afternoon and there's a chance of rain and thunderstorms beginning around 5 p.m. The stormy weather continues tonight with gusty winds and at times heavy rain. It'll be in the mid-60s. Skies clear overnight and stay clear tomorrow for a sunny day with highs in the low 80s. Right now it's 72 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Sarah McCammon. In Ecuador, a presidential candidate has been assassinated. It happened last night as he was leaving a campaign rally in the northern city of Quito. 59-year-old Fernando Villavicencio had served as Ecuador's National Assembly and was among the candidates in the presidential election set for later this month. Villavicencio had made strong allegations of links between organized crime and corrupt state officials. 
Samantha Schmidt joins us now from neighboring Colombia, where she's the Bogota bureau chief for The Washington Post. Hi, Samantha. Good morning, Sarah. So first of all, just tell us what happened last night. Yeah, Fernando Villavicencio was walking out of a political rally at a high school in northern Quito last night when he was shot in the head several times as he was surrounded by security guards and getting into a car, which was not armored. He was rushed to a nearby clinic and was pronounced dead, and it quickly stunned this country and shook up uh, the election cycle just days before, less than two weeks before the presidential elections. And as we said, Via Vicencio served in, in Ecuador's National Assembly. What more can you tell me about him? Yeah, he had been in the National Assembly since 2017 until earlier this year when uh, the assembly was dissolved by the president. Um, he was a former journalist. He had also been an outspoken critic of the former president, Rafael Correa, uh, and he had really spoken out uh, about corruption over the years. And in recent weeks during his campaign, he had been speaking out uh, fiercely against drug trafficking that has consumed this country. And he had talked a lot about the death threats he had received uh, in reaction to these comments he's made. So what could be a motive for his killing? It's still hard to know, uh, but he had said as recently as last week that he had received multiple death threats from in less than 48 hours uh, that claimed to be from uh, a leader or at least someone with ties to a leader of one of the most powerful drug trafficking groups in Ecuador, uh, a local gang uh, known as Los Choneros. It's still unclear, uh, you know, who prompted this, but uh, recently, you know, uh, similar assassinations have taken place again, uh, targeting political leaders, you know, in a port city of Manta, the mayor was assassinated late last month. Um, so this is clearly something that is, uh, it has been happening too, too frequently in Ecuador. And just generally, right, there's been a spike in violent crime in Ecuador. How does that factor in? Yeah, this is a historically peaceful country that has really been ravaged by drug trafficking and gang violence in the last few years. And, you know, this is a country that is uh, between the two largest cocaine producing countries in the world, Colombia and Peru, and increasingly Mexican cartels and even Albanian mafias have been working with local gangs and terrorizing cities that had previously never seen these levels of violence. We're talking about record levels of homicide, record levels of uh, cocaine seizures, heading to the U.S. and Europe. And this is uh, now clearly spilling over into politics. And late last night, um, the president, uh, President Guillermo Lasso, described this as a political crime. And it is clearly uh, affecting democracy in the country. You know, multiple other candidates have announced that they're, at least for now, suspending their campaigns. Quickly, the, uh, the election is just about 10 days away. What might this mean for the election? Yeah, last night they announced that the elections will still go on, um, but there will be uh, a fierce presence of the, of the armed forces throughout the country trying to maintain order. Uh, the president has announced a 60-day state of emergency. So this is going to be a very tense election cycle in the next 10 days. Washington Post, Bogota Bureau Chief Samantha Schmidt. Thanks so much. Thank you. If you walk through San Francisco, it's hard to miss driverless cars prowling the city, decked out with rooftop cameras and sensors, and also resisted by the city's police and fire departments. NPR's Dara Kerr reports. 
Dozens of fire trucks raced to a massive blaze in a normally quiet neighborhood near Golden Gate Park back in February. As police cordoned off the surrounding area, a self-driving car with no human inside approached the scene. No, go back. No, I'm gonna pop a flare so it doesn't move and run over the, uh, the, the water line. That's police body camera footage from the incident that was obtained by San Francisco news site Mission Local. It shows officers struggling with how to deal with this driverless car. Got a bit of a pickle. I got an autonomous vehicle, uh, the Waymo. It's uh, inching sl uh, slowly and closely to the uh, one of the main water lines that the uh, SF fire just charged. The police were able to get the car in park and wait until Waymo came and collected it. But this incident wasn't a one-off. The San Francisco Fire Department has tracked 55 similar episodes over the last six months. And our folks cannot be paying attention to uh, an autonomous vehicle when we've got ladders to throw. That's San Francisco Fire Chief Janine Nicholson at a meeting about the issue on Monday. Again, I will reiterate, it is not our job to babysit their vehicles. Nicholson says five of those incidents happened in just the last week. Some of these cars have run through yellow emergency tape. Others have blocked firehouse driveways. Cops have had to smash the windows just to disable the cars. Sometimes the vehicles refuse to move, so fire trucks have to back up and take another road. Nicholson says in an emergency, time is critical. Every second can make the difference. A fire can double in size in one minute. If we are blocked by uh, an autonomous vehicle, that could lead to more harm to the people in that building, to the housing overall, and to my first responders. San Francisco is a testing ground for self-driving cars. Most are run by the company's Cruise, which is part of GM, and Waymo, which is owned by Google Parent Alphabet. Nearly 500 roll through the city's hilly streets every day. Some cars have safety drivers, others are completely empty. Many offer rides like a taxi. Both Cruise and Waymo acknowledge the incidents with emergency vehicles, but haven't answered directly why their technology is responding this way. Cruise AVs have now driven over 3 million miles safely, the vast majority of which go unnoticed. That's Cruise's Prashanti Rao Raman speaking at the meeting on Monday. She says driverless cars are safer than human-driven ones when it comes to passenger safety. Today, California's transportation regulator is set to decide whether to allow more self-driving cars in San Francisco and other cities like Los Angeles and Santa Monica. Lauren Renata, San Francisco, says she wouldn't like that. It doesn't feel like the technology is ready to be on public streets, and that makes me nervous. Hundreds of people have written public comments to the regulator. The vast majority say they oppose adding more self-driving cars to the streets. Protesters also gathered in San Francisco on Monday to speak out against more autonomous vehicles, which they call robo-taxis. Stop the robo-taxis. Stop the robo-taxis. Many of them echoed the words of Fire Chief Nicholson, who's been repeatedly saying that the self-driving cars aren't ready for prime time. Dara Kerr, NPR News. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour on Morning Edition, we'll have the latest updates on the devastation from the wildfires burning in the Hawaiian Islands, causing deaths and massive evacuations. It grows cloudy this morning and a flood watch goes into effect around 2 p.m. ahead of storms that may bring rain and gusty winds. It'll be in the mid-80s. The storms continue tonight. It'll be in the mid-60s. Tomorrow it dries up for a sunny day in the low 80s. Right now it's 72 degrees in Boston.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Burlington-based Avid Technology is being acquired by a private equity firm in a $1.4 billion deal. Tools from the audio and video editing company are used to edit popular movies. The company has been public for 30 years. It's being acquired by a California-based STG subsidiary. Cambridge-based Alterna plans to use over $100 million in new funding to get to human clinical trials. The transfer RNA biotech company tells the Boston and Business Journal. Some money will also be used for hiring. The company has not said which drugs it's trying to get into human clinical trials. A popular vegan restaurant in Somerville will close its doors at the end of the month. The owners of True Bistro say inflation and rising food costs were making it hard to turn a profit. It's 744. I'm Asma Khalid, and I love a good story. That's why I love NPR's politics beat. There's always plenty of drama and suspense. Your car has a story, too. It's been there for daily life and memorable events. So when it's time for a new car, let your old car do one more good deed. Donate it to this station, and we'll turn it into tomorrow's stories. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A. IKU.com. You're listening to Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Boston's largest housing provider has a new leader. This week, former city councilor Kenzie Bach begins her role as administrator of the Boston Housing Authority, the agency that oversees the city's affordable housing. She joins me now. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. As the new leader, what's your philosophy and what direction do you want to take the agency in? I think that public housing is a critical public good. And it's, to me, as central as the availability of public libraries, public transit, is the fact that we all know that you know things can happen in our lives. We can lose a job. We can get sick. And the question is, does that create a domino effect where we also lose our housing? Or are we secure and able to stay in our communities? Obviously, we struggle with the fact that we don't have enough of the resource to meet demand. So even when we're providing the best customer service possible, we're still telling you in the case of public housing that you're on a 37,000 person wait list, um, which is tough. And it's why I'm so committed to adding units. You mentioned the people on the waiting list. Some people on waiting lists have been on those lists for years. What's your plan to deal with that? So it does come back to adding units. The reality is that In Boston, for a long time, we've had a commitment at the BHA to prioritizing housing folks out of homelessness. 
I think that's really critical. It means that our average new public housing tenant in Boston is much lower income than some other housing authorities nationwide. Unfortunately, that means that if you are stably housed and on the wait list, you can wait a very long time indeed. And it gets back to the fact that our housing ladder is broken today in Boston. I think of myself as stewarding sort of rungs zero and one and two of the housing ladder. But what we find is even our folks in public housing who are doing well, who are earning more money, there's no rung three, four, five, six, and so there's nowhere for folks to move on to, and so then we don't free up spaces on the wait list. So to me, it gets back to the fact that all of the housing market in Boston is connected. So it means that even as we do our part to add new public housing units, there's also got to be new middle-income units, new market rate units that come on so that there's spaces for everyone. How does it feel going into a job with challenges like that, that these are such big challenges, so entrenched, We have the housing crisis. We have the rising cost of living. We have the rising cost of construction. How do you deal with that emotionally? It's the big, hard job that I want to be doing. It's the critical issue for the city of Boston. I always say that, you know, it doesn't matter how wonderful we make the city of Boston if Bostonians can't live here, can't stay here. So I think uh, for me, emotionally, it's actually a huge relief to just be working on the main thing. I find that I don't therefore worry about it because it's what I spend every minute doing. I'm curious about what's there in your background and your experiences that make you so passionate about this. And also just kind of what this step as administrator represents in your life, in your life stage. So I love Boston and... What I love about Boston is a city that's diverse and that people can live their whole lives in and that people of every walk of life can live in and is not gatekept by income or race. And my grandfather was really invested in the affordable housing world and actually helped found a lot of the organizations that I work with now. And actually, my dad was involved in getting transitional housing cited in our neighborhood that's still there today. And so I, I grew up very much thinking from a kind of family perspective that people living in the city is the key building block to having a great city. What's your plan to use more of the city's resources to help people who the BHA is housing? Yeah, this is critical for me. I actually came from representing the wealthiest city council district in the city, right? It runs West End, Beacon Hill, Back Bay, Fenway, Mission Hill. And that district also includes most of the universities and hospitals and museums of the city and sports teams as well. And Going from that to being BHA administrator just really underscored for me that Boston is a city full of resources, but they don't always get into our public housing communities. Putting the BHA at the heart of every city department decision, every like institutional resource allocation, that's got to be one of my main goals as the administrator. Kenzie Bach is administrator of the Boston Housing Authority. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Coming up at 8.20 on WBUR's Morning Edition, a vast section of the ocean off the central California coast may become one of the first federal sanctuaries spearheaded by a Native American tribe. It's 7.50. I'm Steve Inskeep. Around the world, our co-host Leila Fadel has been reporting from Ukraine. In your community, workers are unionizing in fields where they haven't always had a big presence. And farther afield, think really far, like out of this world. Five. 
and liftoff of Artemis 1. Morning Edition from NPR News takes you wherever the story is. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. Hawaii officials say at least 36 people have died in wildfires that swept through parts of Maui. President Biden has signed an executive order limiting U.S. investments in some Chinese technology, and an anti-corruption presidential candidate in Ecuador has been assassinated. Cloudy skies in mid-80s today. Late this afternoon, there's a chance of showers and thunderstorms. Tonight, showers and thunderstorms are likely, and it falls to the mid-60s. Then we end the week tomorrow with a sunny Friday in the low 80s. Right now, it's 72 degrees in Boston. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldin. A new dramatic series on Netflix tells the story of the rise of Purdue Pharma through its drug OxyContin, then the addiction crisis that followed. Each episode of Painkiller begins with a disclaimer. At first, it seems like the typical, this story is based on true events, but some things have been fictionalized. And then you realize, oh wait, the person giving me this disclaimer is a relative of someone who lost their loved one to the opioid epidemic. What wasn't fictionalized is that my son, at the age of 15, was prescribed OxyContin. And at the age of 32, he died, all alone in the freezing cold in a gas station parking lot. And we miss it. It's a message that director Pete Berg felt that just about everyone would take personally. I mean, I have friends who've died from opioids and OxyContin specifically. While we were making the show, there hardly a day went by when a crew member didn't come up and say, you know, my brother, my mother, my friend, my friend's child. It's very hard to find someone that has not been directly touched by opioids. Now, this series traces the start of the painkiller Oxycon, and it's narrated by a lawyer in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Roanoke, Edie Flowers, played by Uzo Aduba. Why tell the story through her eyes? You know, it, it's very complicated to, to unpack sort of the how we got here of it all. You know, started back in the 50s with Dr. Arthur Sackler, who sort of was the architect of almost all of this. He was one of the first to realize that you could market these drugs the same way fast food restaurants market hamburgers, a skill that he passed on to his nephew, Richard Sackler, who's played by Matthew Broderick in our show, and um, Uzo's character, Edie Flowers, was a, a very helpful character in explaining this very dense web to an audience. This isn't just about a pill that kills a lot of people. It's bigger than that. Now this thing, this plague, it started when Someone in that family realized that the big money in medicine was in sales and marketing. The way it's depicted with the pharmaceutical reps giving out these stuffed plushy toys that are shaped like a pill. I mean, that stuffy toy becomes its own character in this show. If you could talk about that and the marketing that you were trying to depict. 
what Purdue did, which is what a lot of other companies do, where they hire young, attractive college students and send them out to you know small town doctors all over this country and getting these doctors to buy into Oxycontin and start mm -hmm. prescribing it. And Purdue treated these reps to parties and you know, Florida vacations and they were incentivized extremely well to sell higher uh, milligram doses of Oxycontin. It, to me, felt almost cult-like when I saw the sales rep uh, retreats in you know, the Caribbean and Florida. The kind of insanity of the entire event you know, led us to those Oxycontin plushies, these giant dancing Oxycontin pills. Something that stuck with me is this scene of Matthew Broderick playing Richard Sackler as he hatches the plan to create and then market and market and market this drug. All of human behavior is essentially comprised of two things, uh, running away from pain and toward pleasure. If we become the gatekeepers for everyone who wants to get away from pain, then we have changed the world. He understood that what he was selling was going to take away a lot of pain and was going to be very, very appealing to hundreds of thousands of people. If you look at it strictly from a capitalistic perspective, he, you know, he hit a home run. If you put any basic morality into the equation, it was sinister. Edie Flowers, she also sort of is driven by a personal story of a different epidemic that destroyed her family. And she discovers that the oxy epidemic is following a similar pattern of increased crime, homelessness. I want to play this clip. Those little Purdue Malibu Barbies are doing the exact same thing as every crack dealer in every corner in America, except they are getting rewarded for it, getting made rich off of it. And my brother is in a prison cell right now, rotting. What is the difference? And yet, she can't figure out how to prosecute it, right? Yeah, I mean, it certainly enrages her that what was considered a crime and real degenerate behavior when it was crack cocaine is being rewarded financially. But it became clear that Purdue was lying about how addictive they knew the drug was and how many problems were being caused by the drug in terms of pill mills being set up around the country, uh, people crushing it up, kids using it recreationally, all this kind of stuff. And then what Purdue was able to do very effectively was just sort of influence enough powerful people so that even when prosecutors kind of had them, they were very elusive. In real life, the New York Times reported on a Justice Department memo where some federal prosecutors wanted to bring felony charges against Purdue Pharma executives, including members of the Sackler family, perhaps, but that never happened. Instead, some company executives pleaded guilty to misdemeanors. And in the series, you end on a deal being cut. Did you want to raise questions about why this company and executives at companies like this never faced more serious charges? Right. Well, I mean, I think that we present the company as being very, very talented at avoiding prosecution, but that doesn't mean that they've uh, escaped the karmic wrath of what they've done. You know, Richard Sackler, wherever he is today, um, has to live with the fact that his name has been taken off uh, the walls of the Met and the Guggenheim and the Louvre and medical schools around the country. That 
is probably more hurtful and damaging than all of the financial payments that the Sacklers have paid out. Pete Berg is the director and co-producer of the Netflix series, Painkiller. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Okay, take care. The Sacklers have denied any criminal wrongdoing, but agreed to pay roughly $6 billion in exchange for immunity from future civil lawsuits, a deal that's still pending in the courts. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Sarah McCammon. It grows overcast today and we'll have temperatures in the mid-80s. There's a chance of rain and thunderstorms late this afternoon. Tonight, storms are likely and those may bring heavy rain and gusty winds. It'll be in the mid-60s, clearing overnight, and then we end the week with a sunny day in the low 80s. Right now, it's 72 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. I'm evening host Garo Hagopian, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. At least 36 people are dead as wildfires tear through the Hawaiian island of Maui, causing devastation and frantic evacuations. It's Thursday, August 10th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, Arupa Shanoi. Coming up, a Labor Department report out later this morning is expected to show an uptick in inflation last month for the first time in a year. Also, the Biden administration is moving ahead with what could be the largest national marine sanctuary in the continental U.S. And this hour, more than a month into the fiscal year, Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey has signed the new state budget into law. This is a budget that got it right and will make a huge difference in the lives of people in the state, as well as our trajectory. We'll look at what made it in and what got left out of the spending plan. In sports, Red Sox win mid-80s today with rain and storms possible. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Catastrophic wildfires continue to rage across the island of Maui, killing at least 36 people and injuring dozens of others. Hawaii Senator Maisie Hirono says hundreds of tourists and residents in the historic town of Lahaina were forced to evacuate. All of the businesses and the 10,000 or so people who live there, in addition to the tourists, uh, all needed, needing to either shelter in place or be evacuated. Helicopter pilot Richard Alston surveyed the damage over Lahaina on Wednesday. It's just level flat to the ground. Just just a horrible thing. Just it, It's uh, for history forever gone. President Biden has approved federal resources to help local search and rescue efforts. State health officials are looking ahead to the fall and to the threat of flu, RSV, and COVID-19 coming together. NPR's Ping Wong reports people will have new options to protect themselves this year. COVID cases are swelling this summer, but health officials are more concerned about the coming months, with back to school and cooler weather helping respiratory viruses spread. Over the next few months, new vaccines against flu, COVID, and for older people, RSV, are coming out to help protect people against this triple-demic. 
Dr. Ann Zink, Chief Medical Officer for Alaska, says it may be best for those 60 and older who are now eligible for an RSV vaccine to get that shot first. But if someone has the resources and ability to spread them out, there is some data that being able to spread them out could be beneficial to that individual. Then, in general, flu and COVID vaccines can be given together when they're out this fall. Ping Huang, NPR News. Intelligence officials in Ukraine are releasing new information about a Russian hacking attempt. NPR's Jenna McLifflin reports the operation targeted military situational awareness platforms used by Ukraine. Russian hackers moved closer to the front lines with Ukraine in order to steal Ukrainian Android tablets and spy on military operational planning. That's according to a new report by Ukraine Security Services, the SBU. The head of the SBU cyber department, Ilya Vityuk, told NPR these combat information platforms are Russia's top priority. Our enemy is extremely focused in uh, getting insight into these systems. Vityuk said the SBU thwarted Russia's attempts to get full access to its military planning tools, but the hackers did get some sensitive information. But he said that exposing Russia's tactics can help protect its allies from similar attacks. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News, Kiev. This is NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston is one step closer to rebuilding the Long Island Bridge. The state gave the city a key permit for the project yesterday. The original bridge was demolished in 2015 due to structural concerns. The bridge would connect Boston to addiction and mental health services. The progress comes amid an uptick in violence in the city's Mass and Cass homeless encampment. City officials hope the bridge will reopen by 2027. West Brookfield residents say they're being targeted by a neo-Nazi extremist group. Local police have received reports this week of anti-Semitic vandalism and messages. The department thinks the vandalism is consistent with the same extremist group believed to be behind similar incidents in Chatham and Peabody last summer. A new study shows southern New England is among the spots losing snow cover the fastest in the world. Michaela Savitt reports. New England temperatures are already warming faster than national averages, according to federal data. Now, a new study published in the journal Climate looked at the last 23 years and found southern New England is losing its snow cover at the fastest rate in North America. Stephen Young with Salem State University is the report's author. It's not just a a local thing. It really is a global phenomenon. We just happen to live in one of those hot spots where it's happening faster. Less snow means the ground can absorb more heat. The report found the world has lost over 5% of its snow cover since the year 2000. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Michaela Savitt. Boston could soon establish an Office of Latino and Caribbean Affairs. Several city councilors filed an ordinance to establish such an office during the council meeting yesterday. Supporters say the office would help address the Latino and Caribbean community's needs and increase access to city services. It's 8.05. WBUR supporters include Sony Pictures Classics with Shortcomings, a new comedy directed by Randall Park starring Justin H. Min as a film geek who seeks an ideal relationship when his girlfriend leaves for a New York internship, now playing only in theaters. The Red Sox defeated Kansas City by one run last night. They now lead the home series by one game. The teams will play one more time at Fenway tonight at 7. And tonight marks the first game of the Patriots preseason. They'll Houston. 
host and they'll host Houston tonight. That game also kicks off at seven. Clouds will increase throughout the morning, bringing a chance of rain in the late afternoon. A flood watch goes into effect beginning at 2 p.m. We'll have a high around 84 degrees. Tonight, showers and thunderstorms will likely bring heavy rain and gusty winds. Temperatures fall to lows in the mid-60s. Clearing overnight, then tomorrow a sunny Friday with a high near 82. Right now it's 72 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org slash rentals. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. For some people, this summer's heat is a matter of life and death. In a moment, a cardiologist says which patients face higher risk. First, we report on the heat of Hawaii's wildfires, which swept through the island of Maui. The lieutenant governor says at least 36 people are dead from the fast-moving fires on Maui. The town of Lahaina is mostly destroyed, and fires continue burning. Hawaii Public Radio's Bill Dorman comes to us from Honolulu. Hey there, Bill. Aloha, Steve. Uh, Thank you. What do people there think about when they think of the town of Lahaina? You know, Lahaina is a beautiful spot on the west side of Maui Island. It's tucked between the West Maui Mountains and the Pacific Ocean, right on the water. It's a beautiful place for sunsets. And it's really, it's a place of tremendous Hawaiian history. In the early 1800s, it was the capital of the Hawaiian kingdom. Mm. A few years after that, it became one of the real centers of Hawaii's whaling industry, which long before tourism was a commercial uh, uh, motor here here across Hawaii. Uh, These days, a popular tourist attraction, especially a street lining the dock at the edge of the harbor, Front Street. It's also got a lot of wood there, wooden buildings, wooden docks. And right now, that's that's history that's in in many cases burned to the ground and charred. Well, we heard from Sylvia Luke, the lieutenant governor of Hawaii, about that. She toured the area, area by helicopter. Here's some of what she told us. Homes were destroyed. Businesses were destroyed. It just looked like the whole town dissolved into ashes. Bill, as someone who's been to Lahaina, what goes through your mind when you see these images and videos? Yeah, heartbreak is a word that's used a lot, but uh, just seeing those pictures of the helicopter, it's really, uh, it's it's devastating. Um, the, those charred uh, ruins, one of the problems also just in, in getting precise information really from this area on the extent of that and what that means in human terms, Power and phone service have both been down in West Maui. They're still down, uh, landlines and cell phone service. And while there are fears that casualty numbers will climb, you mentioned the latest numbers now, injuries also reported, people hospitalized for smoke inhalation and burns. Uh, Some of those folks have been evacuated to hospitals in Honolulu. And uh, people across the state really are are feeling the pain of the, the folks in Maui. We mentioned the death toll, 36 as of now. What are some of the other numbers that you have that give some shape to this disaster. 
Yeah, it's really uh, still developing, but one area that, that we're turning to now is the people who are leaving Maui. These are, are visitors, they're tourists, they're also residents there. Uh, the Hawaii Convention Center here in Honolulu has been turned into an emergency shelter of sorts. They say they're prepared to handle 2,000, potentially up to 4,000 people if needed. Mm. Uh, State Transportation Director in that news conference said about 11,000 visitors left Maui Wednesday. Some going home, some going elsewhere in the state. Another 600 people are staying overnight at the main Maui airport for early morning flights. Officials expect maybe another 1,500 people or so to leave Maui today. Are people surprised that a wildfire like this would strike in Hawaii? You know, Hawaii does have wildfires. They're part of uh, seasonal realities here. Uh, it gets hurricanes, but that that combination is unusual, not unprecedented. It happened on Maui and Oahu in 2018, but that combination is dangerous because uh, not just the, the high winds spreading the flames, but those storms dry out the atmosphere, so that gives the, the fires more fuel to burn. Mm. Bill Dorman with Hawaii Public Radio. Thanks so much for the update. Thanks, Steve. Aloha. Inflation has been falling steadily over the last year, but that streak appears to have broken. The Labor Department is set to deliver its cost-of-living report for the month of July, and forecasters expect it will show inflation heading in the wrong direction. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us. Whether inflation goes up or down, Scott, good morning. Good morning, Steve. So if we get an official increase, what's behind it? It's partly just math. Uh, Prices were flat last July, so any increase in price between June and July this year would raise the annual inflation rate. Uh, Energy prices are also a factor. Uh, Gasoline prices have been climbing in recent weeks. And while the average gas price is still well below the record $5 mark we saw last summer, Pump prices are once again putting upward pressure on inflation. A petroleum analyst Patrick DeHaan, who's with Gas Buddy, blames production cuts by Saudi Arabia for driving up the price of crude oil, while hotter than usual weather on the Gulf Coast made it harder for refineries to turn crude oil into gasoline. Oil prices finally broke out of their kind of well established range and um, didn't get any help by some of the triple digit temperatures down in Texas and Louisiana that caused some issues on the refining side. And that's not the only way sizzling summer weather is hitting people in their pocketbooks. Uh, Air conditioning bills are also likely to be higher in many parts of the country. The federal government does offer low-income families some help with their energy costs. But Mark Wolf, who heads an association of state energy assistance officials, says most of that money goes to help with heating bills in the winter. It's not really set up to deal with the growing price of staying cool in the summer. The underlying problem is they don't have enough money to run a year-round program. And that's what we're concerned about. The program and the state rules are all oriented around heating. They're not oriented around rising temperatures. Steve, that may have to change if we have more hot summers in our future. Is inflation likely, though, to cool off as we head into the fall? Energy prices could well come down this fall. Electricity prices are expected to drop as a result of lower natural gas prices. And demand for gasoline typically dips once kids go back to school. Also, in mid-September, refiners switch over to a cheaper winter blend of gas. So the summer spike in gas prices could be short-lived, Han says, unless a tropical storm blows into the Gulf, in which case all bets are off. That's the other wild card. If we get hit by a hurricane, that could pose problems not only for oil production, at a time that the Saudis are cutting back, think of all those rigs in the Gulf of Mexico, 
But that also could really hit us on refining, and you can't make up for lost time. Keep in mind, while gasoline prices do pack a big psychological punch, they're actually a pretty small piece of the overall inflation picture. Gas accounts for less than 3.5% of the consumer price index. Okay, what's happening with the rest of that index? If you strip out volatile food and fuel prices, so-called core inflation is projected to be about 4.7% for the 12 months ending in July. Uh, That would be down a little bit from the 4.8% we saw in June. Uh, We do expect to see a further drop in the price of used cars, uh, possibly the price of new cars as well. Now, the Federal Reserve has been worried about the price of services, uh, things like getting your car fixed or going to the dentist. Uh, The Fed's concerned that could keep inflation elevated. But service prices have moderated in recent months, and we'll find out this morning if that trend continued into July. By the way, the Fed's next interest rate decision will be in late September, so we'll have another month of pricing data before that comes. Okay. NPR's Scott Horsley, thanks so much. You're welcome. A drug company has been lobbying Congress to get Medicare to cover its weight loss drugs. Novo Nordisk makes Wigovi and Ozempic. These are very popular drugs, and aside from weight loss, the company claims they may prevent heart attacks. But many people need a lot of money to pay for the drugs. Many insurance plans do not cover them, and the company is leaning on lawmakers to get it covered under Medicare, the health care program for seniors. Rachna Pradhan from our partner KFF Health News is here to discuss this. Good morning. Good to be with you, Steve. Thanks. Why doesn't Medicare cover these drugs? Well, there is an explicit ban under federal law that says that Medicare's prescription drug benefit cannot cover drugs that are used for weight loss. I'd like to understand why there would be a ban, because it does seem obvious for many people in many health situations that losing some weight will be beneficial for them. So why would the federal law explicitly forbid that kind of drug? Well, when Medicare's prescription drug benefit was created in 2003, we were living in a different time Weight loss drugs that were on the market were not nearly as effective as the new generation of drugs that we are seeing on the market now. And at that time, it was really fresh, I think, in lawmakers' memory that there were some pretty major diet pill debacles that made lawmakers extremely skeptical about covering these drugs under Medicare. So there was this environment 20 years ago when the law was passed. Now things have changed, or Novo Nordisk would like people to think so anyway. What are they doing to try to get Congress to change this ban so that Medicare would cover their drugs? They are focused on the Congressional Black Caucus and associations that are kind of affiliated with that caucus of lawmakers to communicate their message and get allies in their pursuit of this policy goal. Does this include campaign contributions or what? Well, certainly Novo Nordisk and other pharmaceutical companies give campaign cash to uh, lawmakers, regardless of political party. But they oftentimes will sponsor panels, webinars, and give to these nonprofits that are associated with these different groups of lawmakers as a way to sort of bolster their advocacy work, if you will. Is this particularly bad, though? I'm thinking about studies that find that black Americans do have certain kinds of health problems more often than other people, and that can include problems like heart attacks and strokes and obesity. For sure. I mean, based on the body mass index, the BMI, African-Americans have the highest rates of obesity in the U.S. And so I think there's a reason why Novo Nordisk would want black figures to be a part of its messaging on this. And it is true that these drugs really do have significant benefit in that the weight loss experience among patients is very significant. 
However, as with anything in American medicine, you can't separate costs from the benefits. And any drug, regardless of what it is, has benefits, but also has risks. And so I think that that is the thing that needs to be balanced, right? Which is that you have to look at the bigger picture from all of these different factors. Rajana Pradhan of KFF Health News has been covering a lobbying effort by Novo Nordisk for its weight loss drugs. Thanks so much. Thank you. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Thursday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, a Labor Department report out later this morning is expected to show that inflation increased last month, in part because of energy prices. It's 819. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. Rural colleges in America are struggling. Enrollment and funding shortages are forcing many rural colleges to close or slash programs to stay afloat. If you live in populated places, you get the good options. And if you don't, you just get things that prepare you to go to work. The impact of losing rural higher ed on local students and the nation. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Highs in the mid-80s today with clouds moving in this morning, and those may give way to rain and thunderstorms this afternoon when a flood watch goes into effect. Tonight, rain and storms are likely, and it falls to the mid-60s. Tomorrow, clearing skies mean a sunny day with highs in the low 80s. Right now, it's 72 degrees in Boston. Robbie Robertson, lead guitarist of the band, has died at age 80. He wrote classics like The Weight and Up on Cripple Creek. We'll celebrate his music today on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, who, along with its retailers, is partnering with AdoptAClassroom.org to provide funding to high-need schools and local communities for Subaru Loves Learning. Subaru, more than a car company. From Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Prompt, with a mission to help students get into their top choice colleges, Prompt's one-on-one application and essay coaching is designed to help students write compelling college essays. More at myprompt.com NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Sarah McCammon. A new National Marine Sanctuary, which would be the largest in the continental U.S., is inching closer to creation. More than 7,000 square miles would be protected off the coast of California. It could also make history because the sanctuary is being spearheaded by a Native American tribe. It's part of a growing movement to give indigenous people a say over the lands and waters that were once theirs. Lauren Summer from NPR's Climate Desk has more. The central coast of California is known for its windswept beaches, scenic cliffs, places that people like to visit. But those places mean something else to Violet Sage Walker. Almost all the places that people like to go to are our sacred sites. And we've been going there and praying and doing ceremony there for, you know, 20,000 years. Walker is the chairwoman of the Northern Chumash Tribal Council. We're looking at the Pacific Ocean north of Santa Barbara, a patch of water that, if Walker is successful, could become the next U.S. marine sanctuary. Protecting that site is a spiritual connection for us, the same as any other religion protects their, you know, their icons of their religious symbols. That's ours. The story of the Chumash people is like that of a lot of other tribes. When European settlers arrived, they were forcibly removed from their land. The community shrank from disease and displacement. But when Walker was a kid, her father was part of a movement to restore the tribe's culture and language. Ten years ago, he nominated more than 7,000 square miles of ocean here to be protected by the federal government. It would be called the Chumash Heritage National Marine Sanctuary. It was so important with the name that the name reflects how you know, we originally took care of this place, and that was, you know, my dad's hope was that um, we would walk and speak our language on our land again. Last year, her father passed away, so Walker picked up the cause. In a few weeks, the federal government is expected to release its final proposal for the sanctuary, the last step before it's created. Becoming a marine sanctuary would prevent oil rigs or wind turbines from going in offshore. Fishing is usually allowed, and the area is also monitored by scientists. But Walker's tribe is looking for more than just conservation. They want to be co-managers. We are not wanting to be employees of NOAA. We are wanting to be separate and equal. And so that we have autonomous decision-making. And they're already getting started. So all we're going to do is get, get as close as we can without getting our feet wet. Steve Palumbi is a marine biologist at Stanford University. He's here with Walker and other Chumash tribal members to check on the health of the ecosystem. For a sanctuary, it's, it's a forever thing. And so we want to know not only what's here now, but also how it's changing over time. Figuring out what's in the ocean is normally an expensive process. It takes scientists and divers and boats. Now that's changing thanks to a piece of equipment Columbia is holding. Fishing rod actualized metaprobe eDNA retriever. It sounds fancy, but it's not. It's a fishing rod with a small metal mesh ball on the end with a wad of gauze inside it. It's designed to catch DNA. There's little bits and pieces of organisms out there, scales from fish and little legs from from sand crabs. The gauze soaks in that DNA soup. Then they bring it back to shore and sequence it, which tells them what's living in the ocean here. Palumbia is training tribal members to do this monitoring themselves. Oh yeah, it's really fun. Mia Lopez is a cultural educator with the Coastal Band of the Chumash Nation. She says they want to be part of tracking the threats to this place, like climate change. If we can see that change immediately because we're doing the research, then we can make change right away. 
The idea is that tribal members will be able to take scientific samples from their tomals, their traditional canoes. It really is a way of showing that yeah, this community is involved not just in the history of the place, but the future of the place. This model of tribes co-managing public lands is slowly growing under the Biden administration. Walker says the relationship can still be uncomfortable, given all that tribes have gone through. It's really tough to trust the federal government, um, even with the, some of the highest seats in the federal government, being indigenous people. Walker is waiting to get more details from the government about how co-management might work. The fishing and offshore wind industries will also weigh in on how the sanctuary could affect them. Walker says she'll keep going until her dad's vision is realized. Basically, every time we do this work, we're praying for a better world. We're praying that what we're doing is going to make a difference. Public comment on the proposed Chumash Heritage National Marine Sanctuary is expected to open later this month. Lauren Summer, NPR News. Robbie Robertson has died. He wrote some of the most memorable songs of the 1960s and 70s. I pulled into Nazareth, was feeling Robbie Robertson also played lead guitar for the band. The group became famous, backing Bob Dylan. Which they did at a hotly debated moment. Dylan had become famous as a folk musician, playing acoustic guitar and harmonica, and then he plugged in his music. His electric sound with the band infuriated some fans. Robertson talked to WHYY's Fresh Air in 1994. We got booed all over the United States. It was like we were the bad guys in the situation. But the band became big stars on their own, thanks to albums like Music from Big Pink from 1968 and The Band, released in 1969. This is often misunderstood as a Confederate anthem, although the song by a Canadian has also been interpreted as an attempt to empathize with Southern poverty and loss. When Robertson decided the band had run its course, he enlisted film director Martin Scorsese to immortalize them in the legendary concert film, The Last Waltz. After the band split up, Robertson kept working with Scorsese, and their movies include the upcoming film Killers of the Flower Moon, which takes place in Oklahoma's Osage Nation. Robertson's mother was Mohawk and Cayuga. Robertson says he learned guitar during family visits to the Six Nations Reserve. I claim a right to live on my land and accord you the privilege to return to yours. One of his half a dozen later albums was called Music for the Native Americans. In a statement, Martin Scorsese said his friend's music seemed to come from the deepest place at the heart of this continent, its traditions and tragedies and joys. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR's Morning Edition. We get the details on the new Massachusetts state budget from WBUR's Steve Brown. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, providing wholesale and retail fuel products. Located in more than 60 communities in and around greater Boston. ALPrime.com. And Comcast Business providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Wind-driven wildfires in Hawaii are now blamed for at least 36 deaths. The flames have burned homes, businesses, and vehicles on the island of Maui, where thousands of people have been evacuated. Jackie Young with Hawaii Public Radio says the Lahaina fire has also destroyed historic buildings in the popular tourist town. Witnesses likened the devastation to Armageddon. Some jumped into the ocean to avoid being burned. Thousands have been displaced and are still without power. Some roads are completely blocked. The Hawaii Convention Center in Honolulu is preparing to house up to 4,000 evacuees from Maui. Acting Governor Sylvia Luke extended the emergency proclamation through the end of the month. She requested that visitors not travel to Maui at this time. On the Big Island, the fires on the northwest side closed roads. Visitors at the Mauna Kea Resort are sheltering in place. For NPR News, I'm Jackie Young in Honolulu. Later today in Utah, President Biden is expected to highlight his administration's efforts to help U.S. military veterans exposed to toxic burn pits while serving in places such as Iraq and Afghanistan. The president is scheduled to speak in Salt Lake City as he wraps up a three-state trip to the western U.S. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A new $56 billion state budget is now law. Governor Moore Healy signed the spending plan yesterday. The budget represents an increase over last year of about 6 percent. It includes a number of new spending programs, including universal free school meals and workforce training. We'll have more details on the budget coming up in about 15 minutes. State wildlife officials are reminding people to stay close to their pets when outside. This comes after a viral video circulated last week showing a coyote with a small dog in its mouth in Jamaica Plain. David Waddles is a biologist with Mass Wildlife. He says coyote pups are just now starting to explore their territories. It's very, very common for particularly small dogs and cats to be taken by coyotes. And... It can be hard for the public to to hear this or understand this, but we consider that to be normal behavior. Waddles also asks people to secure any trash and pet food they may store outside. He also recommends people, quote, haze coyotes if they see them. That can mean blowing a whistle, throwing small objects at them, or waving your arms around to scare the coyotes off. The Sumner Tunnel renovation project is more than halfway complete. State highway officials say workers have installed about three-quarters of the planned new equipment within the tunnel. The Sumner Tunnel shutdown began in July for the widely anticipated two-month closure. Officials say the project is on schedule and the tunnel is set to reopen on September 1st. A mid-19th century sculpture is heading back to Boston after more than five decades. The so-called Wounded Indian sculpture is controversial for its outdated depiction of, of indigenous people. It was owned by the Massachusetts Charitable Mechanic Association. The piece was thought to have been destroyed in the 1950s. Its rediscovery at a museum in Virginia in the 1990s prompted a decades-long dispute. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, supporting the Franklin Park and Stone Zoos and their efforts to protect and preserve the natural world for future generations. The Patriots are hosting the Houston Texans during their first preseason game tonight. Kickoff is at 7.
The Red Sox are celebrating a one-run victory. They defeated Kansas City 4-3 to last night at home. Tonight marks the final game in the four-game series, which the Sox lead two games to one. Overcast with highs in the mid-80s today, a flood watch goes into effect this afternoon, and there's a chance of rain and thunderstorms beginning around 5 p.m. The stormy weather continues tonight with gusty winds and, at times, heavy rain. It'll be in the mid-60s. Skies clear overnight and stay clear tomorrow for a sunny day with highs in the low 80s. Right now it's 72 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox, streaming new and original British series starring Succession's Matthew McFadden and Game of Thrones' Gemma Whalen. Available at BritBox.com NPR. From Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Inflation has been falling steadily over the last year, but that streak appears to have broken. The Labor Department is set to deliver its cost of living report for the month of July, and forecasters expect it will show inflation heading in the wrong direction. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us. Whether inflation goes up or down, Scott, good morning. Good morning, Steve. So if we get an official increase, what's behind it? It's partly just math. Uh, Prices were flat last July, so any increase in price between June and July this year would raise the annual inflation rate. Uh, Energy prices are also a factor. Uh, Gasoline prices have been climbing in recent weeks. And while the average gas price is still well below the record $5 mark we saw last summer, pump prices are once again putting upward pressure on inflation. Uh, Petroleum analyst Patrick DeHaan, who's with GasBuddy, blames production cuts by Saudi Arabia for driving up the price of crude oil, while hotter-than-usual weather on the Gulf Coast made it harder for refineries to turn crude oil into gasoline. Oil prices finally broke out of their kind of well-established range and um, didn't get any help by some of the triple-digit temperatures down in Texas and Louisiana that caused some issues on the refining side. And that's not the only way sizzling summer weather is hitting people in their pocketbooks. Uh, Air conditioning bills are also likely to be higher in many parts of the country. The federal government does offer low-income families some help with their energy costs. But Mark Wolf, who heads an association of state energy assistance officials, says most of that money goes to help with heating bills in the winter. It's not really set up to deal with the growing price of staying cool in the summer. The underlying problem is they don't have enough money to run a year-round program. And that's what we're concerned about. The program and the state rules are all oriented around heating. They're not oriented around rising temperatures. Steve, that may have to change if we have more hot summers in our future. Is inflation likely, though, to cool off as we head into the fall? Energy prices could well come down this fall. Electricity prices are expected to drop as a result of lower natural gas prices. And demand for gasoline typically dips once kids go back to school. Also, in mid-September, refiners switch over to a cheaper winter blend of gas. So the summer spike in gas prices could be short-lived, Han says, unless a tropical storm blows into the Gulf, in which case all bets are off. That's the other wild card. If we get hit by a hurricane, that could pose problems not only for oil production, at a time that the Saudis are cutting back, think of all those rigs in the Gulf of Mexico. But that also could really hit us on refining, and you can't make up for lost time. Keep in mind, while gasoline prices do pack a big psychological punch, they're actually a pretty small piece of the overall inflation picture. Gas accounts for less than 3.5% of the consumer price index. Okay, what's happening with the rest of that index? 
if you strip out volatile food and fuel prices, so-called core inflation is projected to be about 4.7% for the 12 months ending in July. Uh, that would be down a little bit from the 4.8% we saw in June. Uh, we do expect to see a further drop in the price of used cars, uh, possibly the price of new cars as well. Now, the Federal Reserve has been worried about the price of services, uh, things like getting your car fixed or going to the dentist. Uh, the Fed's concerned that could keep inflation elevated. But service prices have moderated in recent months, and we'll find out this morning if that trend continued into July. By the way, the Fed's next interest rate decision will be in late September, so we'll have another month of pricing data before that comes. Okay. NPR Scott Horsley, thanks so much. You're welcome. Yet another company is getting in on the sports betting frenzy, and it's a big one. The sports broadcaster ESPN is partnering with the casino company Penn Entertainment to create ESPN Bet. That deal could mean a big haul for ESPN, an estimated $2 billion over 10 years. For more on the deal, we are joined now by Mike McCarthy, a senior writer with Front Office Sports. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Okay, so as I understand it, ESPN has historically resisted any ties with gambling. What accounts for this change of heart? Well, ESPN's resistance really derived from its parent company, the Walt Disney Company. Uh, Disney always felt that sports betting would sully its family-friendly image. Hmm. But as we all know, Disney needs money right now. Uh, they're looking to cut $5.5 billion in costs, and they get $2 billion for basically doing nothing. They're just licensing the most famous four letters in sports, ESPN to Penn National, and they don't have to handle any of the operations. So maybe they can come to terms with it. ESPN, of course, is a media outlet. How might this partnership with a gambling service change the network's mission and focus? Well, I think you're going to see a lot more talk about parlays and odds and betting lines. Uh, ESPN has avoided that over the years, although many ESPN talents like Scott Van Pelt have treated sports betting with a wink and a nod. So uh, you're going to see heavy promotion of this new ESPN bet platform, which launches in the fall. You're going to see ESPN personalities appearing in, on ESPN bet, and you're going to see greater emphasis on gambling shows like Daily Wager. I mean, it seems like there are some potential conflicts of interest here in terms of credibility. How is ESPN going to, to navigate that? Well, you just uh, put your finger on it. There's conflicts and red flags galore here. Uh, the last two NBA drafts, we've seen uh, NBA insiders like Shams Karania and uh, ESPN's own Adrian Wojnarowski actually move the betting odds with their reporting. So, you know, that's a big potential conflict of interest. If Adam Schefter is out there tweeting information, will that move the betting lines and cause people to uh, lose uh, millions of dollars? The other big thing, and we're about to report this today, is will ESPN let its own employees use ESPN Bet? Uh, you know, that's a question. Will on-air talent be able to use their own company-branded app? We'll find out. Can you give me a sense of how users will experience this? I mean, will they be directed to some kind of an app or, or, or how will they interact with the, the ESPN betting operation? Essentially, they're just taking over the Barstool Sportsbook app. So it'll be the same platform, uh, the same app, uh, the same uh, brick and mortar locations, just rebranded ESPN uh, bet. Uh, I don't know if you remember back in the old days, ESPN had something called ESPN Zone. It was a chain of... Uh, basically restaurants with a lot of sports TVs. Well, now think of ESPN Zone with betting screens instead of TVs. 
And quickly, you know, we touched on some of the credibility issues. What about just fans' faith in the fairness of sports they see on ESPN? Is there a danger to that? Yes. Uh, I think this whole thing, we've opened up a can of worms. I really do. It's, it's a Pandora's box. You're seeing more athletes getting nailed for gambling violations. Uh, you know, the more uh, media companies like this lean into this whole idea of gambling, the more viewers are going to ask if they're being sold a bill of goods. But there is an awful lot of money on the table, huh? That's an awful lot of money, $150 million a year for licensing your name. Mike McCarthy, senior writer for Front Office Sports. Thanks so much for your time, Mike. Thank you. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report tells us about a new documentary that chronicles the rise and fall of the Beanie Baby bubble. Cloudy in mid-80s today with a flood watch that goes into effect around 2 p.m. ahead of storms beginning late this afternoon that may bring rain and gusty winds. It'll be in the mid-80s. The storms continue tonight. It'll be in the mid-60s. Tomorrow it dries up for a sunny day in the low 80s. Right now it's 73 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, Marlboro-based Rewalk Robotics plans to buy a California-based rehabilitation tech company. The company is paying $19 million for Alter G. Rewalk officials tell the Worcester Business Journal the all-cash deal is expected to close tomorrow. A global pharmaceutical company plans to open a new building in Cambridge. Estellas is expanding into the biotech hub with a life sciences facility. Company officials expect to bring nearly 300 employees to the new location. Estellas expects the building to open next year. Six Flags New England is hosting its largest ever audition for Fright Fest cast members this weekend. The attraction tells Mass Live it's hoping to hire 300 performers in 30 days. Six Flags says it has openings for dancers, actors, and more. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. And Symbiosis Learning Center in Milton, now enrolling for the upcoming year. A nurturing and mindful environment for middle and high school students. SymbiosisLearningCenter.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts now has a state budget. Governor Moore Healy signed the $56 billion spending plan yesterday at the State House. After signing it, the governor said this budget makes the state more affordable, competitive, and equitable. It will make a real and meaningful difference in the lives of people across Massachusetts, lowering their costs expanding access to opportunity, improving the quality of their life. The new budget comes 40 days into the new fiscal year. Joining us with an overview is WBUR's Steve Brown. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Rupa. So this is Moore Healy's first state budget. Was she able to get through many of her proposals? 
Yeah, she did, but she shares a lot of her priorities with the legislature. For example, the budget includes free tuition at community colleges for students 25 years and older who do not have a degree. The thought is that those folks can get better jobs with some college experience, but the cost of tuition has been a barrier. Now it shouldn't be. They're also hoping plan to eliminate community college tuition for nursing students will help address the state's nurses' shortage. These were in the governor's proposal back in March and are now a reality. So that's community colleges. What else is in this budget for students? Well, for starters, free school lunches for all students. This grew out of the pandemic-era money. Educators have long said kids can't learn if they're hungry. This addresses this issue. Massachusetts becomes the eighth state to permanently provide free lunches to school kids. Uh, The budget also provides $475 million in grants for early education and child care. There's also language in the budget that allows undocumented high school students who have been attending Massachusetts schools to be charged the lower in-state tuition for the state's public colleges and universities. So this is the first budget with funding from the so-called millionaire's tax. That's the surtax on individual income above a million dollars a year. That money was supposed to go to education and transportation. How much are those areas getting in this budget? Yeah, the surtax brought in about a billion dollars. Of that, $522 million is going to education and $477 million to transportation. And that includes $205 million for the MBTA. I know this budget also has a provision providing for free phone calls for Massachusetts inmates. But am I right that the governor made a slight change to what the legislature approved? Yeah, she wants to delay it for a few months to figure out how to implement it. So the start date has been pushed back to December 1st. The families of inmates say the free calls will help their loved ones maintain ties while they're incarcerated, and that'll make it easier for them to re-enter society when they're released. Is there anything in this budget that Governor Healy vetoed? Yeah, just a few things, uh, most notably $205 million that would have used one-time funding sources. Uh, The governor said she did it to keep the budget in balance. She said that they were able to find ways where they could make cuts within programs and trim things that were redundant or where there was other funding available. Before I let you go, I want to ask about tax relief because we've been hearing about it for a while. Is it in this budget? It's not in the budget. It's a totally separate uh, bill that's going through the, the, the legislature. Both the House and the Senate have passed their own versions of that tax relief bill. This was supposed to be dealt with last year, but that was put on ice because the state had to return some $3 billion to taxpayers last fall. As I said, both the House and the Senate passed their own versions earlier this spring. And it's currently in a conference committee that, like all other conference committees, is pretty tight-lipped about what they're thinking. WBUR Steve Brown, thank you very much. Thank you, Rupa.
Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR is the BBC News Hour with the latest on the investigation into the shipwreck in the Mediterranean Sea that killed at least 41 migrants. And they'll have a recap of what came out of a summit in Brazil about protections for the Amazon. It's 849. The art of casting in Hollywood has a rich but at times troubling history. Personally for me, I've cast enough shows that if it were not for my presence as a black man, the role would not have been cast with black actors. I'm Elsa Chang. Hear my conversation with Hollywood's first black casting director and the host of a new podcast about casting from LAS Studios on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. Wildfires have killed at least 36 people in the Hawaiian Islands, where the National Guard has now been deployed. The U.S. Labor Department has just released the monthly consumer price report, showing that inflation increased slightly in July. And an anti-corruption presidential candidate in Ecuador has been assassinated. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. Cloudy skies in mid-80s today. Late this afternoon, there's a chance of showers and thunderstorms. Tonight, showers and thunderstorms are likely, and it falls to the mid-60s. Then we end the week tomorrow with a sunny Friday in the low 80s. Right now, it's 73 degrees in Boston. People in wildfire-ravaged Hawaii had already been grappling with a housing shortage. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.AI. This is Enterprise AI. I'm David Brancaccio in Hawaii, where at least 36 people are dead in wildfires. Honolulu's convention center is being set up to shelter 4,000 people. Hawaii has an ongoing housing shortage with severe homelessness in normal times. Hawaii's Governor Josh Green called for people planning visits to Maui to cancel plans in order to free up hotels, resorts, and Airbnb spots to become temporary shelter. And Ed Sniffen at Hawaii's Department of Transportation said in a briefing overnight that officials and airlines worked to get more than 11,000 people out yesterday. When we look at the Trans-Pacific flights, um, Alaska, Delta, United, uh, and American have increased capacity by bringing in larger, larger planes to ensure we get more seats to get more people off the island. Um, Southwest has dropped their, their fares and increased their, their service. And Hawaiian is still operating to make sure we can get as many people off of Maui as possible. The fires have been fanned by high winds connected to a hurricane. Separately, there's a calculation of the costs of intense thunderstorms that have hit other parts of the U.S. this year. Here's Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer. 
A new report says a series of severe thunderstorms in the U.S. caused insured losses of $34 billion in the first half of this year, the most ever in six months, according to Swiss Re Group. Swiss Re is a reinsurer, meaning it covers insurance companies. Swiss Re says severe convective storms with heavy rain, hail, and sudden temperature changes caused almost 70 percent of the insured losses worldwide for the first half of 2023. Another reinsurer says thunderstorms just in Texas in June caused more than $8 billion in losses. Swiss Re blames climate change, but also land use planning and what it calls urban sprawl into the wilderness. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genser for Marketplace. There's news just now that the consumer price index ticked up slightly, up at a 3.2% annual rate using July's data. The cost of housing was a key part of this. However, so-called core inflation, excluding food and energy, went up just two-tenths of a percent, which is calming inflation fears. S&P futures are up seven-tenths percent. NASDAQ futures are now up one percent. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Grammarly. Grammarly Business empowers companies to drive faster results with secure enterprise-grade generative artificial intelligence that works where teams do. It helps businesses break down information silos, collaborate efficiently, and quickly adapt to stay competitive. Grammarly.com business. And by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. For Econ Extra Credit, here it's uh, one film a month on Marketplace themes. This time around, it's Beanie Mania. It's on the rise and fall of Beanie Babies, the plush toys that people thought had value worthy of investment. This is the documentary from 2021, not the fictionalized Beanie movie from last month. It was a bubble that was fueled by wild thoughts that, for instance, getting the right beanies could fund a college or retirement. Here's a moment from the film. There was such a frenzy. Oh, gosh. Just the electricity. They would just lunge and grab, and somebody was yelling, I need, I need, and it would go flying across the store. You'll start to do anything you can to quote unquote complete your collection. That's when things got out of control. Indeed. To this day, many people still cherish their beanies, but I spoke to a person in the film who is not in that category. Harry Rinker is an expert on antiques and collectibles who embraces the handle Beanie Meanie. When they first came out, people didn't collect them. Then all of a sudden, they started to appear for sale on eBay at prices significantly above retail cost, okay? Then what happened is that dealers found out that if they could corner the market at stores and stuff and scarf them up so the edition wasn't continuous, it was limited, that they could then throw this stuff on eBay and create a frenzy, a buying frenzy. And they did. And then, you know, it's the lesson that we try to teach about so many other financial assets. Trees don't grow to the sky. You know, yes, things can go up, but they also tend to come down on the other side. Yes, they do. So all of a sudden, supply exceeded demand. When supply exceeds demand, it's all over. The film also explores some other interesting economic facets here. One of them is there's the primary market for Beanie Babies, the company that made them, Ty, selling them. But then there's the other market, the one you've just been talking about, the auction market or eBay, where if a Beanie Baby goes for 10 grand, the company that made the Beanie Baby doesn't really profit. 
Oh, but they do. They promote that market by restricting sales. In other words, they had a limited production run, one year, two years, and then they would go out. Well, the minute they would go out, that was like adding value to the thing. Now, did Thai benefit from that? Yes, because it, people would then buy future Beanie Babies in speculation that they would go up in value, so Thai would increase the runs of the later Beanie Babies. He was an incredibly smart man. And what's so interesting to me talking to you You've thought a lot about collectibles in general, and you don't have this view on everything. Some things you might collect might be a better bet. Uh, no, <laughs> it's all risky. Collecting is about memory, right? Now, I was a big Hopalong Cassidy collector. I owned one of the only complete 10 Hopalong Cassidy bedroom suites known to mankind. I paid $5,000 for it. When I sold it at auction a couple of years ago, I got 300 bucks for it. I once owned 50,000 objects. I'm down to 20,000 at this point, but I'm going to tell you what I did every time I went and bought something from my collection. I went into the bathroom and flushed the toilet to remind me what I just did with my money. So why'd you do it then? Oh, because I love the goodies. You know, the question becomes, how do you know a person is a true collector? He dies with his stuff. Then it's never about the money. Harry Rinker is owner of Rinker Consulting. He's written extensively on collectibles and antiques, and he's featured in the documentary we're watching this month, Beanie Mania sometimes known as the, quote, Beanie Meanie. Mr. Rinker, thank you so much for your time. Yes, thank you, David. Chiming the end of any bubble is one of the great challenges of finance. That's in the extended version, streamable from our homepage. And sign up for the Econ Extra Credit weekly newsletter. Learn along with us, marketplace.org slash newsletters. It's free. I'm David Brancaccio with our morning report. APM American Public Media. Overcast today and we'll have temperatures in the mid-80s. There's a chance of rain and thunderstorms late this afternoon. Tonight storms are likely and those may bring heavy rain and gusty winds. It'll be in the mid-60s. Clearing overnight, then we end the week with a sunny day in the low 80s. Right now it's 73 degrees in Boston and the BBC is coming up next. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.